HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Welcome back to Heritage Radio Network on tour. I'm Kat Johnson from Heritage Radio Network in Bushwick, Brooklyn. But this weekend we are here in Denver, Colorado for Slow Food Nations. I want to thank our partners, Slow Food USA, for bringing us out. I want to thank our supporters, Big Green Egg, Hearst Ranch, and the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts for making our on-the-road coverage possible. Um, we have a surprise addition to our lineup today that I'm thrilled about because I caught up with him a little bit on Thursday evening and I'm excited to talk to him on air and hear about all the new stuff that he's working on currently. Chef Kevin Mitchell is the chef instructor at the Culinary Institute of Charleston, but that doesn't really cover everything that he has going on. No, not at all. <laughs> Welcome, Kevin. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, okay, so first and foremost... Yesterday afternoon got a little bit rained out. We had some interviews we were going to do that we moved to today. Um, you were going to be doing a demo. Well, I was actually in the middle of the demo. Oh, whoa. Just started cooking. Um, had some things on the stove. Um, a couple of raindrops. And everyone's kind of like, eh, well, we'll just hang out a little bit and see what happens. And and we were asking, so, well, do you guys want me to keep going? They're like, yeah, just keep going. We'll just, we'll just do whatever. And um, about a minute or so later, bedlam. You know, just it, the, the skies open, and everyone ran underneath the tent for a few minutes until we were told we had to go into the building. Um, <clears throat> so it was very comical watching everybody take the mad dash from the demo area into the building. We all got soaked. Um, including me. Fortunately, um, the guys saved all my food, all my prep um, from the demo, and then we were actually able to reschedule it and do it today. So, Did you start over today, or did you pick up where you <clears throat> left off? Um, I did a little bit of both. You okay. know, there were some people that were not there yesterday, so I wanted to kind of bring them in, fill them in on exactly what the demo was about and what we were doing, and then from most of it just picked up where I went. I mean, we, we lost 30 minutes, um, so I had to get them in Speed and kind of get them out. Um, so what were you making at the demo? Well, we're doing a dish that encompasses the flavors of the African diaspora. And, you know, the diaspora 
you know, includes ingredients that come to us from Africa to to the Americas. So we're looking at things that included okra, uh, peas, whatever it was, field peas or black-eyed peas, um, bene seed, which is, you know, the original sesame seeds that come to us from Africa that are being uh, redeveloped in, in South Carolina specifically through, uh, through Anson Mills. Um, some kale or greens, you know, those, which is also part of the diaspora. And then I used um, some bene seed oil. So we press the seeds to get oil. And I talked about the importance of bene seed oil um, in the late 1800s as it was the main cooking oil um, in, in South Carolina. Until, of course, you know, the onset of commercialized oils, vegetable oils, so on and so forth, bene seed oil just kind of gets kicked by the wayside. Um, and then I just had a, um, an Ethiopian curry or spice mix, which is called Bebera. Um, hopefully I pronounced it right. I pronounce it wrong every time I say it. Um, but it's a spice mix that contains about 25 different ingredients, toasted chili, salt, cumin, Korean, all kinds of things, fenugreek, and so basically I took that and uh, spread it over a piece of salmon, and basically blackened the salmon using that spice mix, as opposed to just using blackening spice, and then with the salmon, we did a, um, a dish I call peas and greens, mm-hmm. basically taking, cooking peas separately, and cooking greens separately, so I decided to add them to the same pot. Right, which is another aspect of food of the diaspora, one pot cookery. So, you know, black eyed peas, some fresh kale, um, and I introduced some other flavors into it coconut milk, a little curry, some tomatoes, so on and so forth. Uh, is there any left from your demo? Unfortunately, it all got eaten up. Dang, I really. <laughs> Even the chef didn't get to taste it. So. <laughs> I feel like I really missed out on something awesome. So. I'm really curious about all the work you're doing, and we're going to talk about the, the project that's coming up with Dr. David Shields, but you are a culinary instructor, mm-hmm. so with all the work that you're doing around the diaspora and you know low country cuisine and a lot of historical projects, how does that balance with you know, day-to-day working at the, the Culinary Institute of Charleston? Well, it's, a, it's been a good fit. Um, you know, the my bosses, administrators support the work that I do. Um, I am able to kind of introduce some of that stuff into the classroom. So when we're talking about Southern food, um, creating curriculum around Southern food and giving students the opportunity to understand that Southern food is more than just, you know, fried chicken and macaroni and cheese that comes from the deep South. Um, where we talk about the other regions of the South, whether it's the Gulf South, where you know, or the Mississippi Delta going into Louisiana, the Tidewater South, where you, where Maryland and kind of D.C. and Virginia meet. Um, <clears throat> of course, the Gullah Geechee culture, which is hugely prevalent in in the uh, Charleston area, specifically Low Country, um, and just just those different regions and getting people to understand that, like when I was away getting my master's degree in Mississippi, in Oxford, learning that in that area people considered tamales um, southern food or soul food in that particular area. So creating that curriculum and uh, getting the students to understand, once again, that southern food is, is this huge 
huge subject. It's not just, once again, that fried chicken, fried okra, macaroni and cheese, which is all great. But getting them to understand that the South is made up of so many different things. And I think that that's when one of our HR and hosts, Corsha Wilson, recently wrote a piece about how, um, you know, Southern food and African-American food is missing from so many classic culinary training. Yes. Um, how do you how do you want to see that change? And how and you know what are you doing personally, and what do you want other schools to be doing to change that? Personally, for me, um, because I have the support of my administrators, you know, they are allowing me to create curriculum around those things and introducing them into a specific class where we're going to start off as it being maybe an elective for those students who are interested in understanding um, southern food or um, whether it's the Gullah Geechee, whether it's the Gulf Coast or whatever, just creating this curriculum and having this class. And then hopefully, possibly further on, creating a, a specific program around that because you have you know the schools like CIA they have a full program that represents Latin American cuisine you know why can't we have a full program that represents the food of the south because the food of the south is so hot now everyone's talking about it even even in the north you have people opening up southern style restaurants in the north so it's very popular and I think also for one thing for culinary schools to they need to bring in or hire more African-American chef instructors. Um, for me, being in a culinary school of 12 full-time staff and being the only African-American chef instructor for 11 years is a problem. You know, and then, you know, of course, you have the CIAs and the Johnson & Wales where the CIA has three to four campuses, and between those campuses, you may have one or two. That, that has to change because the student profile is so different. I mean, it, it, at my school... My um, enrollment for African Americans goes well into 40%. You know, there are a lot more African Americans going to culinary school, so they need to see someone that looks like them. We need to introduce these specific cuisines. And we also, not specifically Southern, but we have to start with African first and then move our way into because that's where Southern cuisine starts. It starts in Africa, it makes its way to America. And I think that obviously. When a lot of people think about culinary schools, you think about traditional French culinary um, training, and also French cuisine historically has been one of the most codified. So it's been written down, it's become like this benchmark, it's become just like the standard. And I think we're starting to see more and more and more of the African diaspora and Southern cuisine be codified with amazing cookbooks and amazing literature. Yes. Um, going back to Edna Lewis, like one of the greats. And now you're working on your own project. Yes. And t tell us about it. Well, working on a project with um, Dr. David Shields. Um, he's a professor at the University of South Carolina. He and I have been tied at the hip since 2014. He's when a good we, person to be tied to yeah, the hip, too. When we first um, talked about recreating a, um, a dinner that happened in 1865 in Charleston at the end of the Civil War, um, where we were able to take this this dinner from this chef. His name was Nat Fuller, who was, at that time, the greatest black caterer in Charleston. If you wanted to function catered, it had to be done by Nat Fuller. Um, and he creates this 
this dinner two weeks or so after the Civil War ends. And he brings in, it's basically, for the first time, both whites and blacks sitting together at a table in the spirit of equality, in the spirit of reconciliation. So that's kind of where David and I first get together. He brings me the story of Nat Fuller, and then he says, hey, why don't we, like, research and recreate this dinner, and you stand in the shoes of Nat Fuller. And honestly, when he brought it to me, I thought he was not really really serious about it. You know, you have conversations. Oh, we're going to do this. And, you know, weeks go by, you don't hear. Well, it didn't happen with David. You know, two weeks later, my email was inundated with so much information about who he is. So, and and working with David, who is this great um, culinary historian and someone that I kind of strive to be as far as the knowledge that he has, which I don't think I'll ever get there. He just... I mean, it's just so much stuff going on in that head of his. But um, recently we got together and um, signed the contract, and we've been contracted by the University of South Carolina Press to write a book about Southern food, um, specifically connected to, to Charleston. So basically we're calling it a guide to Southern food and Southern ingredients. So if you look at the book, almost like a dictionary, Everything that we write about is going to be listed in alphabetical order, uh, we, and basically we're calling them entries. So, you know, there's an entry for okra. There's an entry for the Lady Baltimore cake, which is only historic to Charleston, right? There's, you know, red rice. We're writing about um, boiled peanuts, and I actually did an entry on pot liquor and, like, what pot liquor really is and how it comes about and why is it so important to to African-Americans, specifically enslaved African-Americans. So we write these entries. They're about three pages long. And then at the end of the page, we actually include the sources where we get this information from. So our research method, which is really, which is one of them is really cool. We go through um, genealogybank.com and we type in the the entry so I type in pot liquor and then I type in a specific time frame so it could be from 1700 to 1900 then I only search South Carolina newspapers so any newspaper during that time that has or article that has the word pot liquor in it pops up so you run the gamut you can find 40 articles you can find 1,700 articles. It just Ooh. depends. Um, and then, you know, we just kind of go through the articles. We pick out the ones that we think are really interesting, and we put them in a file. And then the next day we go back, we kind of read through, and then we, we put together our entry. Now, of course, you know, David's in Columbia, South Carolina. I'm in Charleston, which is about an hour and a half from each other. So a lot of it right now is being done via email. Um, we have a running list of about, I believe, 90 <coughs> excuse me, ingredients and or dishes. And we just pick the ones that we're really interested in. And uh, so we write the entry. I s- send it to him for his feedback. Um, and he, he'll email me back and say, okay, I think you need to include these points. Um, I think this really this piece of information is really interesting because we're not trying to make the book an academic book, mm-hmm. um, though we know David is very academic, 
So I think the partnership that we have, him being the true academic that he is, and then me coming in from the chef's point of view and writing these these entries, and it's anecdotal stuff too. It's you know little funny stories that talk about the ingredients. So you know the Nat Bradford watermelon. If you know the story, you know at one point it was the most popular watermelon in South Carolina. So much that the farmer would poison watermelons to keep people from stealing them. Well, however, the farmer, of course, would forget which ones were poison, and sometimes they would actually eat the poison ones and they would die. Which is, it's not a funny story, but it's kind of a cool story to to kind of to give people the reference on how how popular that watermelon is because it's only specific to South Carolina. So that's kind of what the book is going to be. We'll probably end up with about, I believe, um, 75 entries. Um, We have our manuscript is due April of 2020. Mm -hmm. We're more than halfway through. So we're going to beat the deadline way before April. So the hope is the book comes out in the fall of 2020. But if we get it done early, it'll probably come out early. Right now, we're also kind of debating on whether or not we're going to do photographs as opposed to illustrations. Mm-hmm. Um, we have both have two very different feelings about that. I believe photographs add this really great touch to a book. But of course, when it comes to publishing a book, photographs are more expensive to, to actually produce. So, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll get to that when we get really close to the manuscript being done. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, so that's like, that's the major project on my horizon for right now, but there's some other things I'm working on too. One question about this, when you're, are you going to include a lot of historical recipes in those yes. entries? Yes. So, so how do you like test those and make sure that they, well, the recipes will be when we find these articles, and if there's a recipe attached to the article, say for okra stew from a, the Charleston City Gazette in 1835, we screenshot it and we add it to the page. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I also have some contemporary recipes. But the recipes that I'm adding that are more contemporary are things that, that have been tested already, right. whether they come from Edna Lewis's cookbook or a recipe from Jessica Harris or for some, for somewhere else. But there may be some recipes that I will specifically write myself. And then, of course, you know, I will, I will test those um, for the book. But the book is meant to be, it's, de- it's meant to be educational, but it's also be- meant to be really fun, um, a way for you to really understand Southern cuisine as it relates to Charleston, as it relates to these specific ingredients or whatever dishes that are in the book. And it's going to focus only on South Carolina. And I yes. already told you that when you're ready to move to other states and you want to do Alabama, let yes. me know. Yes. Most I'm excited definitely. about that. Most definitely. Um, so one other question I have for you, um, kind of maybe the New York Times did a really great profile of like African-American chefs that are changing, you know, yes. the face of American food, um, which was great. Amazing piece. Uh, but I'm also curious your perspective on anyone you think that's elevating Southern food, food of the African diaspora that we should be paying more attention to. Um, well, you know, the it was a pretty comprehensive list. And the really great thing is that I know a good deal of those chefs personally. 
um, and have met them, worked with them. You know, Ed, Eduardo Jordan being one of my favorites. Um, that you know, Jerome Grant at the uh, at the museum in D.C. Um, you know, it's it, it's 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 kind of hard to say. I mean, as a, as a chef, and of course, chefs are very competitive. <laughs> uh, you know, I you know I've gotten a lot of emails and texts from from people that I work with who were asking the question, "How come I wasn't in, in on the list?" And you know, it's the work that I do. I don't. I'm not doing the work to be on the list. Mm-hmm. I know that I'm doing really great work uncovering the stories um, and that when when my time is, has come, it will come. Um, but I think they were able to really capture, you know, and there are some chefs that I didn't even know, you know, of, of their work and what they were doing, which is really great. Yeah. And I thought it was a great article. It was great for New York Times to, to write this article, specifically one reason because it's not it wasn't written in in the month of february right it wasn't it's not a black history month article they write they write this article and they're giving these black chefs their genuine due and they're not doing it just because it's black history month and that's that's a big issue that i think a lot of black chefs have is you know we we can get the press and people will come to see us or come to our restaurants but you know it's it's like that whole okay well it's february Let's feature black chefs for the whole month of February. You know, why not just feature black chefs throughout the throughout the year? And so I think it was a really great article for them to do it at this particular time. And with some of the chefs that are really in there that I know personally, that I know the work that they're doing. Um, so it was really great. And I, I, I hope to see that there's more articles like that that come out. Um, also, you know, hope to see that Black chefs become are, are getting more press. You know, we know last year, you know, James Beard, you know, five black chefs in one night win win a James Beard award, which is freaking awesome. Yeah. You know, and um, I actually watched it um, as I was sitting writing my master's thesis. I was supposed to be writing, but who can write? Yeah, who can write when this 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 program is on and you see someone like Eduardo Jordan, or of course someone from Charleston win for barbecue which I thought was very interesting I would never think that James Beard would have anyone that represents the barbecue but that goes to show that you know they are making moves to to kind of change how how black chefs are are viewed in in the culinary industry I just want to see more of it I want to see you know more you know more african-american chefs that are really do, that are really doing great work getting the press that they deserve i couldn't agree with you more and i think you're doing you're cooking you're teaching you're writing i can't think of anyone doing more to further that than you well thank you thank you it's 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 a lot of work it's rough you know <laughs> you know writing especially you know being in a master's program a few years back and um, still teaching online and, and, and being, a gra- of course, a grad assistant and all these other things. And it was a lot of work. You know, of course, you know, anyone that knows about writing a master's thesis, you know, it's, you know, it's, it's a, it becomes a child. It's a labor of love. You know, you, you come, you, you present this hundred and some page work in front of your committee. And, you know, the only one that's actually read it more than anyone else is your committee chair. And the other two committee people, they only read it two weeks prior to the defense. But it becomes this, this, this part of you. And, you know, the, 
what I wrote about, of course, because it dealt with the work that I do as far as uncovering these stories about the enslaved cooks and even some of the free cooks and referencing it to Charleston, you know, it's it's received some really great, some actually some really great press. I mean, it, it, it's actually put in um, one of the local uh, branches of the Charleston Library, so anyone can go into the library and read it. Um, What's the title of it? It's called um, "From Black Hands to Black." I'm uh, sorry, "From Black Hands to White Mouths." Mm-hmm. The story of Charleston's freed and enslaved cooks and their inspiration on the cuisine of the South. Amazing. So. Um, last question I have for you, bringing it back to Slow Food Nation's mm-hmm. weekend. So you did the demo twice. <laughs> did the demo twice. <laughs> and um, then what's coming up next? Um, well, today, um, later on, I'll be heading down into the commissary kitchen and getting with the chefs to start putting together the zero waste dinner, which I think is going to be really awesome. Um, I was here the first year they did it. I was as, I came as a guest. Um, I missed last year. So this year, it's going to be really cool and interesting to kind of be in the kitchen and see all the stuff that, you know, and I've seen lately the past couple days, all the things that have come in from all the other events. Um, So it's going to be a really great dinner, you know, and it it offers, of course, chefs the, um, the creativity to take something that was used for something else and turn it into something that's totally different, even better beautiful to serve serve to the public so i'm really excited about that awesome okay well if you want to go to the zero waste center tonight i believe there are still tickets available you can go to slowfoodnations.org search for the zero waste center and grab those tickets it's going to be an incredible evening um kevin mitchell thank you for sitting down with me before you you have to go get to work on that (laughs) thank you so much thank you for having me you're welcome anytime all right thank you thanks um once again i'm kat johnson for heritage radio network Thanks to our sponsors, Slow Food USA, Big Green Egg, Hearst Ranch, and the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts for making this coverage possible. Stay tuned. Uh, Coming up next is this lovely gentleman walking up, Chris Starkis. So stick around. We'll be right back. (laughs) 